Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the show, we're talking about men's health and fertility preservation. To guide this discussion, my guest today is Dr. James Smith, who is professor of urology, obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences, and health policy director, male reproductive health at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served on the uh, ASRM Fertility Preservation Special Interest Group. He has served on the executive board and is now the SMRU board member for the ASRM for Fertility Preservation Special Interest Group. Dr. Smith, welcome to ASRM today. Well, thank you so much, Jeffrey. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm happy to help any way I can. So fertility preservation for men is primarily sperm banking. Is that correct? That's true. That certainly is the best way to do it. Um, you know, I imagine the patients who come in to see me, you know, I often imagine, you know, both, you know, uh, adult men and and sometimes pubertal, postpubertal kids. And sperm banking is usually the best way to go for those those guys. So then is, is sperm banking then recommended for, for all men or just say, for example, men who may be diagnosed with, with some sort of illness or might be facing, you know, some sort of uh, uh, uphill battle, uh, as it were? Well, for, for anybody who's really who's facing some sort of fertility threatening treatment, um, sperm banking is really is the best, best way to go. Um, so, I mean, sometimes there are benign conditions um, that can affect fertility. There are certain medications that people have to be put on that can really make a big impact on their sperm quality. So uh, both for, for uh, male patients and also for transgender patients who are, are uh, uh, considering uh, treatments going to affect their fertility, Banking sperm is a is a good way to go. I'm glad that you bring up transgender patients because you know the patient landscape of fertility preservation you know just continues to grow, and with that growth comes certain you know new ethical and possibly medical complexities that have not been prepared for nor really anticipated. Can you just tell us a little bit about maybe just from your own personal practice or, or things that are in the literature even what challenges have have been seen in the last few years? And you specifically mean with respect to transgender patients? You can broaden that if you wish, but we can just focus on transgender if you wish. Sure. Well, I mean, there are lots of really interesting things that are happening on the fertility preservation landscape. From the adult standpoint, from transgender women who have testicles, it used to be that up until about 2018, we thought that there really wasn't a chance for patients to bank sperm, or we didn't really know much about whether or not people could bank sperm if they'd been on estrogen and spironolactone, two medications that are common for uh, adult transgender patients. Colleagues of mine and I looked into this and found that it is possible, even for patients who are taking estrogen and spironolactone, to bank sperm. And we published our work um, a few years ago and, and um, found that it is possible for, for those patients. So now that's that's become routine for us to at least try to bank sperm, um, even when people are on those particular medications. For younger people, for adolescents or young adults who are about to start those medications, we'll often talk about banking sperm. And those patients often come to, to me and my partners to talk about how much sperm to bank. Um, it's often not quite so simple. Um, they bank one sample, and that might not be enough to achieve the family size that they're they're thinking about. And so that's that's part of the discussion they have with ASRM members and you know, people who are interested in this area is to strategize with patients about 
sperm banking is the right thing to do? And how many samples should you bank? Recently, the FP SIG launched a research study to really figure this out and to figure out like how many samples should you bank? And FP SIG has really been a leader in this area. Uh, um, FP SIG serves as an advocate on the policy side, both at the state and national level. And as part of this research effort that the FP SIG spearheaded, We've essentially been working to see and to develop a consensus around what experts at ASRM would recommend for sperm banking. Because on the flip side, insurance companies in some states, California, for example, do allow and do cover sperm banking, but there's not really you know, a guideline on how many samples to bank. And from a clinician standpoint, our goal is to try to help people achieve families and, and help them build families. But insurance companies maybe just say, well, you make one sample and, and you're good and you're done. But that doesn't necessarily achieve really the, the primary goal. So, again, FPSIG has been terrific in trying to advocate for patients and you know, make sure that they get the services they need, both for transgender patients and, and cisgender patients. It's not, of course, surprising to hear that you know, these healthcare companies will you know, sort of buck back at recommendations. For example, are there uh, suggestions uh, made by someone like the FPSIG about saying, you know, maybe for patients with autoimmune diseases, maybe they should bank at least three? Or is, does it work like that? Or No, it really doesn't work that way. I mean, what we're talking about is really about uh, the number of moving sperm a person has in a semen sample. I mean, get to, I mean, to get as technical as that, I mean, the, the more moving sperm that a person has in a semen sample, the more options they have. Whenever you bank sperm, there are essentially two ways that a person could use that, that semen sample. They could either use it for intrauterine insemination, or you could use it for in vitro fertilization. And so for someone who wants to use do IUI, there are lots of good reasons to do that. It's a lot less invasive for partners. It's a lot less expensive. But by the same token, it also doesn't work as well. And couples may have a, say, 15% chance of IUI working in any given month, and you need like 5 million moving sperm. By contrast, in vitro fertilization, you need way fewer sperm. You only need as many sperm as, as a partner has eggs. So you may only need 20 sperm or 30 sperm. IVF works a lot better. You might get 50% chance of success of pregnancy with each embryo you transfer, and you're going to get multiple embryos each IVF cycle. So these are some of the strategies that we talk to, to couples. So if someone had an autoimmune disorder or they were about to face fertility-threatening chemotherapy, really of any sort, what we would look at is how many moving sperm does a person have in a sample, talk to them about you know, their partners, their, their future fertility goals or family building goals, and help them strategize is IUI the right approach? In which case it would be banking more samples. Is IVF the right choice? If so, maybe fewer samples are necessary. But it's hard for me, if not impossible, for me to you know, choose a clinical condition and just without more information, you know, make a specific recommendation like that. Usually it's more than one. Has there been any, of course, we got to always talk about the elephant in the room, which has been the pandemic. Has that changed now as, as patients have been coming back in, male patients? I'm sure that that's one of the big questions on their mind or that you, you probably get a lot of questions about it. Is there anything you can do here to, to maybe help other clinicians who might be facing these questions from men about, you know, uh, uh, things regarding having been sick over the pandemic and does that affect sperm count and, and whatnot? Right. Well, one of the major changes that uh, we've um, made in our practice at UCSF has been to really embrace telemedicine. And we've found that telemedicine has been really fantastic 
it allowed us to really continue to see patients at our at our same level um, throughout the pandemic. Really didn't slow down at all. And it allowed us to consult with patients about any of their reproductive concerns throughout this, throughout this time, which has really been fantastic. We've seen that having COVID can be really hard on sperm production. And, and the illness itself can cause sperm numbers to drop. Fortunately, that appears to be a temporary phenomenon and that typically over months, people tend to see their numbers come back to normal. We've seen zero impact of vaccination on sperm quality. Um, so from a fertility standpoint, fortunately, vaccinations are protective against the, the problems of COVID. My guest today is Dr. James Smith. We're talking about men's health and fertility preservation. You served on the ASRM Fertility Preservation Special Interest Group. You continue to assist them in your current role. Can you tell our wider membership a little bit about the group? Yeah, the Fertility Preservation Special Interest Group is uh, a group of about 400 ASRM members who have interest in fertility preservation from a range of different perspectives, whether from egg cryopreservation or sperm cryopreservation, transgender fertility preservation, pediatric fertility preservation for for both genders, um, male and female, cis and transgenders. And it's it's a really terrific group, you know, really focused not only on the, the science of fertility preservation, really at all levels from basic science, translational science, clinical science, and also really work to working to improve advocacy efforts and uh, has a patient advocate on on the board as well. And so these these are all the, the missions that we embrace. And this really has been a fantastic group to participate in. Are there any resources that you would like to recommend to membership or providers regarding male fertility preservation at this time? Well, I certainly would always point toward the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, um, the guidelines that we have on fertility preservation, and always terrific resources through our ASRM website. Well, and we, of course, will post direct links to that as well as to the FPSIG website through our show notes so people can just click on that and go straight to it. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for taking time out today to be on ASRM Today to talk about uh, this topic. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. You can rate and subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasting needs taken care of. If you have questions about this show or you have questions about our show in general, ASRM at ASRM.org. Again, thanks to my guest today, Dr. James Smith. I am Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.